Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 482, Saying Prayers versus Praying. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are well. I am actually doing a happy dance because I finished business taxes on time. Yay. So that's out of the way. Sigh of relief. And I wanted to thank everyone for so many emails that I I haven't even gotten through all the emails. Finally, I just went through and found all of the voicemails for this week's episode, and I'm, I'm going to continue reading. So if you haven't heard back from me, you're in the queue. But a lot of people responded to my email newsletter thing that came out last Sunday, and I really appreciate your support and, and your kind thoughts. If you didn't get the newsletter, you can sign up for it, or you can just click on the link at the show notes, episode 482. That's craftlit.com slash 482. And you can read what's up and where I have been and where I am going to continue to be for a little while yet. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And apologies. I have to make an apology, especially to Maggie, but to all other fellow Southern Californians. Here, let me play you Maggie's voicemail. Hi, this is Maggie. I'm from Southern California, and I've listened to your podcast for a while, but I was really floored when you started talking in what you thought was a Southern California accent, as if everyone from Southern California speaks that way and is of a lower intelligence than yourself. I was really insulted. Thanks. So, I don't blame you, Maggie. I'm I'm so sorry, and I feel like such a schmuck. Sometimes I forget that I'm not just talking to myself here. And as a fifth-generation Californian, I am awfully proud of that and and my family's history and all of the weird ways we got to California. But I also grew up when Moon Unit Zappa's Valley Girl song came out. And then I went to UCLA. And Moon Unit's vocalizing of a specific type of girl at the time was clearly infectious. But as Maggie says, and I'm agreeing with, definitely in the minority. Most Californians don't sound like that at all. In fact, they sound a lot like Maggie and me. Nobody has to lose their accent when they move out of California. But the Valley Girl thing was definitely part of my high school and college life. And Thank goodness. I hope nobody still talks that way. So I truly apologize to the entire state of California, especially Southern California. I loved growing up there. I was lucky to have grown up there. And and I'm sorry. Along with Maggie's voicemail, we got a lot of informational voicemails this week. So first, we have a short and quippy one from John in Indiana. Hi, Heather. This is John in Indiana. I was just listening to Anna Green Gables when I heard 
her interesting comment about the kitchen's not clean until the dish rag is scalded. Now, there's the one that understands microbiology. So the dish rag scalded thing makes perfect sense. And, and I'm wondering how old that phrase is now, John. Hmm. It has to go way back. And it's really smart because on the Internet, if you look up, <laughs> just Google someday when you're bored, how do I get the smell out of my sponge? <laughs> wow. There are hundreds of people who have posted that question. And usually the answer is either boil it, microwave it in white vinegar, microwave it in lemon juice, or send it through the dishwasher. But the majority of the people who wrote back, wrote back saying, throw it out and get a clean one (laughs) because they breed bacteria. It's what they do. So thank you, John. Next, we have a voicemail from Lise. And this is moving into the conversation about wet nurses. Hello, Heather. This is Lisa in Columbia again, calling back about the wet nurse question. Uh, One of the stories floating around in my husband's family is that when his Doris was born, she, and that would have been in the 19, early to mid-1930s in Appalachia, because I'm sure that place has as much of a part to do with this as time does, her mother, my husband's grandmother, could not nurse her. And the story, as unlikely as it sounds, is that the doctor told her to feed the baby orange juice. I've always been highly skeptical about this, but um, clearly wet nurses were not considered at this time in this place. So I expect that it varies a great deal, uh, dealing as much with where as it does with when. The sheep and goat Milk being better tolerated than cow's milk makes a certain amount of sense, but it's not something I'd heard before. So that's it, and I expect now to hang up and listen. Bye. All right, so I didn't get any more information on sheep milk or goat milk, so don't don't go off telling people that you could do that. And I'd probably throw in, and maybe don't tell people that you can feed an infant orange juice. I mean, they won't get rickets and scurvy, so that's, you know, yay, but... Oh, wow, that's awfully acidic for a little, little tiny baby, I would think. Maybe not. Maybe their digestive system is so weird compared to an adult's. Who knows? Somebody must. So our next voicemail is from Tasha. And I thought this was really lovely. Hi, Heather. This is Tasha, Sisu Girl on Ravelry. I'm calling to speak about wet nurses. It is actually still something that people will do today, mostly informally and as a way to provide a service and to be a part of a community rather than an official title or something that somebody does as a job. Um, Most notably for me in in an experience like this, uh, one of my favorite professors in college, his wife died suddenly after childbirth and she was a member or a friend in a community. And they, the women of that community decided that the best way that they could honor her and her memory was to feed the child as she would have wanted to. And so all of these women banded together to 
provide nursing services for this little baby. And they managed and they were able to nurse that child until he was two and a half years old. And just as they felt and just as the father felt that his wife would have wanted. So not a career um, and not somebody not somebody specific, but definitely a way that women uh, were able to share their their abilities with uh, very tiny humans who wouldn't have been able to know that. Thank you so much for the podcast, Heather. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. That child must be the healthiest child in the world. To have all those women nursing the baby, that means that the baby got all the antibodies from all of the women. That's so awesome. And wow, I choked up, actually, Tasha, while I was listening to you. That was, that just made my day. I love it. I love it when people are just that awesome. And we have another call from Lise, this on the topic of turmeric. And here she goes. Hi, Heather. This is Lise. So about turmeric, besides the general, oh, it's so good for you and healthy vibes and all this and that, there actually have been some scientific studies. And if you get on scholar.google.com, you can look them up. But the end point is in phase one studies at high doses, it has been shown to be well tolerated. There aren't side effects. And there's some evidence that it has anti-inflammatory properties. Jury's still out on that one. But there's every reason to believe it's safe, and chronic inflammation is involved in many, many of our modern-day large-scale health problems. So finding a way to get more turmeric is probably a good thing. I've drunk some turmeric tea, and it's okay. Not my favorite favorite, but not bad. Enjoy it, and it does not taste like chai, unfortunately. So as far as I can tell, that's the that's the non-woo version of why. And I'll look for golden milk. It sounds interesting. Bye. So I did go on Google Scholar, as recommended, and I found some interesting things that are, in fact, studies. And I went looking uh, initially just for studies and found a really interesting article on how one uh, now doctor in India, growing up in India, how turmeric was used where he grew up fascinating stuff. And then I went and looked for meta-studies. Meta-studies are when a group of researchers go back over all of the smaller studies that have been done and find a way to compare the data. Sometimes that means that they have to find studies that use the same kinds of measurements in order to, you know, be able to put them side by side and, and actually compare the data without it being skewed funny. But they were able to do that with some turmeric studies. It looks like the simplest, most common reaction is that turmeric does a pretty good job as an anti-inflammatory and therefore as a painkiller, which I thought was interesting. Arthritis seems to respond well to treatment by turmeric. And it's something like, I think it was a thousand IUs of turmeric a day, but don't quote me on that. You should go and do your own research. But there does seem to be some peer-reviewed studies that support this idea. The Indian doctor mentioned that women who had had babies recently were given a fresh paste of turmeric with powder of dried ginger root and honey. And then they had that twice a day in milk. 
So that appears to be the origin of the golden milk thing. Because even though most of the golden milk recipes that I've seen on the web have more, more ingredients than just those three, they do have those three. Turmeric, ginger, honey. So something to keep your eyes open for. I know that the golden milk paste or the golden turmeric paste or turmeric paste, all of these are sold in health food stores and they're on Amazon and things like that. So let me know what you think if you try it. I'm curious. And I'm kind of bummed that it doesn't taste like chai. I really like chai. All right, we have another call. This is from Carrie. Here we go. Hi, Heather. My name is Carrie Ellis, here, there, and everywhere. I am calling in because I wanted to participate and share a couple of observations uh, as we're reading through Anna Green Gables together. The first is that this past weekend I did something and it's um, entirely too relatable not to share with the fellow listeners. And that is that I found myself tacking on a moral when I was commenting to my children about something and I realized that I have not grown up to become my mother. Instead, I have grown up and become Marilla. Oh, goodness. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to share is a little less personal, but um, interesting nonetheless. And that is that I'm reading The Secret Garden aloud to my daughter. And I've noticed that it was published in 1911, so around the same time that Anna Green Gables was published. And it's also about a girl, and it's also about a girl who happens to be orphaned. And as it happens, we're in the part of the book where Mary, the main character in The Secret Garden, is called Ugly. And I thought it was really interesting how the authors both chose to have this happen to their characters, and yet how differently Anne and Mary react to it. Anne just loses her cool completely, whereas Mary says to herself, or the author says, you know, Mary was not vain, and she had never thought much of her looks. She was not greatly disturbed. And I loved that in comparison to uh, how Anne managed to uh, handle it. Anyways, I just want to share those things and to say that you do great work, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about Anne. Thanks. Okay, that cracked me up that you've grown up to be Marilla. <laughs> Maybe when I was a kid, I would have thought, oh, I'm so sorry. But now that I'm not a kid, I don't think that's so bad. There's, there's some really good stuff about Marilla that I like. Some of it happens today, too, in our chapters. But I also thought it was interesting that you were reading The Secret Garden because my younger son was comparing Secret Garden things to Anne of Green Gables things as well. And I thought it was interesting that Mary in The Secret Garden manages to not get upset about the, the crack about her looks when she gets upset about pretty much everything else, as I recall. Anne, who seems to be attached to the concept of beauty from birth, you know, anything that has to do with her, she is going to want it to be beautiful, which includes her. So her frustration is understandable. Her responses to what happened with Miss Lynde that we get to see today are, I think, very interesting. And we'll get to that in a second after we listen to 
a call from Jordan. Here we go. Hi, my name is Jordan Phillips. I am just starting listening to your podcast a few months ago, um, and I absolutely love it. I fell in love with Anne Shirley through the TV show because my dad loved that TV show, the one that, that was made, like, in the 80s. He got it on a DVD, and we would watch it all the time. And then Chapter 7 was such an amazing part that he just loved with Anne talking about how she would pray. And something that I thought was so interesting was, in this part, was how Marilla understood Anne in this moment. And she understood that Anne needed, didn't need another, I don't know, like, quote to, as a prayer. She had a quote that was what God was. But the whole idea of prayer is a relationship, building that relationship with God. And so Marilla sees that she has no relationship with God because no one has ever mirrored the love of God onto Anne. And so instead of giving her a scripted prayer, she instead gives her this, she lets her say her own prayer from her own heart. Even as ridiculous as her prayer is, it's from Anne. And I just thought that was so beautiful. I don't know. I love this book. I love literature. I'm an English teacher. I can't remember if they said that. So this podcast has been so wonderful to be able to see how you teach it us. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to listen to the next episode. Bye. I'm so excited you're an English teacher. You have to write and tell me where you're teaching and what and who, and I'm all excited. Yay, English teachers. And I wanted to keep your voicemail for the last one because your comments about prayer, as you probably noticed from the chapter title today, prayer plays an interesting part in especially chapter 11 today, our second chapter. So we'll talk about that a little more with one more call on the flip side. But first, I want to give you some terminology and a couple of little tidbits that might help you with uh, some of the subtexty kinds of things our author was playing around with during our chapters today. First, you're going to hear a reference to June lilies. These are narcissi. The narcissus is a variety of daffodil. You're going to hear a color description, snuffy colored, because people still had snuff and snuff boxes. And that means it was kind of a a dull, yellowy, dull brown, dull yellow brown color. So maybe not the most attractive color is what we're getting at. You'll hear a reference to sateen. This is not satin, pronounced incorrectly. Sateen is a cotton fabric, the long staple cotton. It's combed and then woven in a satin stitch, a satin weave, which is four over and one under. So the majority of your weft threads, the ones that you are actively weaving through the warp, the majority of those wind up on the top of the fabric. So the bottom of the fabric is kind of a a pretty basic matte texture, but the top has that extra surface area for the parallel fibers in the weft as it's being woven. So that would be just fine on its own. But then the fabric is mercerized. And you've heard of mercerized thread, probably. It's a a process where the cotton is soaked in a bath of sodium hydroxide, and then it's rinsed in a neutralizing acid bath. 
what does that do and why do we care? We only care because, unless you're a chemist, then you can care for other reasons too. It's something that swells the cell wall of cotton fibers. That means you get, number one, more surface area that can accept dye. That's how you get those really, really rich colors. And it also brings out the luster. That was Mr. Mercer's thing. Then another guy came along. I think his name was Lowe. He came along and figured out that you could then roll this between heavy drums, heavy heated up drums, and kind of press the fabric down again. And that gave it even more of a sheen. And the other side benefit to all of this is that the fabric drapes really nicely, but it's really quite sturdy. So that's sateen. Puffy sleeves. They are going to keep coming up. Puffy sleeves evidently were promoted in 1895-ish and again in 1905-ish. So they definitely would have been a thing. May not have been the most current fashion at the time, but that wouldn't matter. What would matter is when did Anne see them and how old was she? How big an impression did these things make on her? And the answer is clearly a big impression. Quarterlies. These were little lesson notes that were published by the church. They were delivered every three months, and they had kind of like, they were kind of like a study guide for the uh, passages and paraphrases that the kids were going to study in Sunday school. What's a paraphrase? A paraphrase is a rhymed version of usually a psalm. Sometimes it's other passages from the Bible, but they were rewritten in a way that would allow the children to memorize the paraphrase of the Bible verse quite easily. So they were rhymy and easy to remember. High dudgeon. We've heard this before in other books, and I don't think I've ever taken the time to go down the rabbit hole of trying to find out where this came from. And the answer is nobody's really sure. What we do know is dudgeon was, and this is very archaic, a kind of wood that was used particularly for dagger hilts. The wood came from the root of a box tree, so it's pretty dense and pretty interesting looking. But most of the time, if you look up dudgeon, people talk about it being angry or frustrated or any of these things. The best explanation that I've come across is that it may have come from Welsh. And the word in Welsh, digen, which is spelled D-Y-G-E-N, means anger or grudge. So in high dudgeon just means it's blown up. You are really angry or really feeling grudgy. Humdudgeon is a Scottish term first used in 1908. Humdudgeon is somebody who is whining about an imaginary illness or a, a complaint that really you shouldn't be complaining about that. What's wrong with you? But it came from Scotland. And humdudgeon, I have never heard this used, but I'm totally using it now. <laughs> I love that. So there you get a new word for the week. Midian, you are going to hear a reference to Midian. The history of Midian and the Midianites is epic. It goes on forever and ever and ever. However, for us, the Midianites, who pop up all over the place in the Old Testament, the Midianites uh, at one point in the Bible, and this is getting into, I think, Judges, and uh, it starts in Genesis, it ends up in Judges. During Judges, for seven years, the Midianites had the Israelites under their thumb. They really put it to them, caused them a lot of pain and suffering. and eventually God answers their cries and helps the Israelites through Gideon rise up 
and fight back. And even though the Midianites way outnumbered them, I mean, it was like 300, like the movie 300. Gideon had 300 guys with him. They were able to come back against thousands. And because God was on their side, they walloped the Midianites. You will hear a brief reference to that and also a brief reference to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. This is a section of Revelation where the case is being made that we have all fallen short. And it includes in um, chapter 3, verse 3, hold fast and repent. If you don't keep an eye out, I will come upon you as a thief, and you're not going to know when I'm going to get you. So it's it's not a happy-go-lucky little Bible verse for a soothing morning at church is the thing. And I think that's it. Everything else we'll talk about after you listen. So excited. Here we go. Thank you to Kim Zuckert for reading chapters 10 and 11 for us today. Here we go. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read by Kim Zuckert Chapter 10, Anne's Apology Marilla said nothing to Matthew about the affair that evening, but when Anne proved still refractory the next morning, an explanation had to be made to account for her absence from the breakfast table. Marilla told Matthew the whole story, taking pains to impress him with a due sense of the enormity of Anne's behavior. "'It's a good thing Rachel Lynde got a calling down. She's a meddlesome old gossip,' was Matthew's consolatory rejoinder. "'Matthew Cuthbert, I am astonished at you. You know that Anne's behavior was dreadful, and yet you take her part. I suppose you'll be saying next thing that she oughtn't to be punished at all.' "'Well, now, no, not exactly,' said Matthew uneasily. "'I reckon she ought to be punished a little, but don't be too hard on her, Marilla.' "'Recollect she hasn't ever had anyone to teach her right. "'You're you're going to give her something to eat, aren't you? "'When did you ever hear of me starving people into good behavior?' "'demanded Marilla indignantly. "'She'll have her meals regular, and I'll carry them up to her myself, "'but she'll stay up there until she's willing to apologize to Mrs. Lynde, "'and that's final, Matthew.' "'Breakfast, dinner, and supper were very silent meals, "'for Anne still remained obdurate. After each meal, Marilla carried a well-filled tray to the east gable and brought it down later on, not noticeably depleted. Matthew eyed its last descent with a troubled eye. Had Anne eaten anything at all? When Marilla went out that evening to bring the cows from the back pasture, Matthew, who had been hanging about the barns and watching, slipped into the house with the air of a burglar and crept upstairs. As a general thing, Matthew gravitated between the kitchen and the little bedroom off the hall where he slept. Once in a while he ventured uncomfortably into the parlor or sitting room when the minister came to tea, but he had never been upstairs in his own house since the spring he helped Marilla paper the spare bedroom, and that was four years ago. He tiptoed along the hall and stood for several minutes outside the door of the east gable before he summoned courage to tap on it with his fingers, and then opened the door to peep in. Anne was sitting on the yellow chair by the window, gazing mournfully out into the garden. Very small and unhappy she looked, and Matthew's heart smote him. He softly closed the door and tiptoed over to her. "'Anne,' he whispered, as if afraid of being overheard. "'How are you making it, Anne?' Anne smiled wanly. 
Pretty well. I imagine a good deal, and that helps to pass the time. Of course, it's rather lonesome, but then I may as well get used to that. Anne smiled again, bravely facing the long years of solitary imprisonment before her. Matthew recollected that he must say what he had come to say without loss of time, lest Marilla return prematurely. "'Well, now, Anne, don't you think you'd better do it and have it over with?' he whispered. "'It'll have to be done sooner or later, you know, for Marilla's a dreadful determined woman. Dreadful determined, Anne. Do it right off, I say, and have it over.' "'Do you mean apologize to Mrs. Lynde?' "'Yes, apologize, that's the very word,' said Matthew eagerly. "'Just smooth it over, so to speak. That's what I was trying to get at.' "'I suppose I could do it to oblige you.' said Anne thoughtfully. It would be true enough to say I'm sorry, because I am sorry now. I wasn't a bit sorry last night. I was mad clear through, and I stayed mad all night. I know I did, because I woke up three times, and I was just furious every time. But this morning it was over. I wasn't in a temper any more, and it left a dreadful sort of goneness, too. I felt so ashamed of myself, but I just couldn't think of going and telling Mrs. Lynde so. It would be so humiliating." I made up my mind I'd stay shut up here forever rather than do that. But still, I'd do anything for you, if you really want me to. Well, now, of course I do. It's terrible lonesome downstairs without you. Just go and smooth things over. That's a good girl. Very well, said Anne resignedly. I'll tell Marilla as soon as she comes in I've repented. That's right. That's right, Anne. But don't tell Marilla I said anything about it. She might think I was putting my oar in, and I promised not to do that. Wild horses won't drag the secret from me, promised Anne solemnly. How would wild horses drag a secret from a person anyhow? But Matthew was gone, scared at his own success. He fled hastily to the remotest corner of the horse pasture, lest Marilla should suspect what he had been up to. Marilla herself, upon her return to the house, was agreeably surprised to hear a plaintive voice calling, "'Marilla!' over the banisters. "'Well,' she said, going into the hall, "'I'm sorry I lost my temper and said rude things, "'and I'm willing to go and tell Mrs. Lynde so.' "'Very well.' Marilla's crispness gave no sign of her relief. She had been wondering what under the canopy she should do if Anne did not give in. "'I'll take you down after milking.' Accordingly, after milking, behold Marilla and Anne walking down the lane, the former erect and triumphant, the latter drooping and dejected. But halfway down, Anne's dejection vanished as if by enchantment. She lifted her head and stepped lightly along, her eyes fixed on the sunset sky and an air of subdued exhilaration about her. Marilla beheld the change disapprovingly. This was no meek penitent such as it behooved her to take into the presence of the offended Mrs. Lynde. "'What are you thinking of, Anne?' she asked sharply. "'I am imagining out what I must say to Mrs. Lynde,' answered Anne dreamily. "'This was satisfactory, or should have been so, "'but Marilla could not rid herself of the notion "'that something in her scheme of punishment was going askew. "'Anne had no business to look so rapt and radiant.' "'Rapt and radiant Anne continued "'until they were in the very presence of Mrs. Lynde, "'who was sitting knitting by her kitchen window.' Then the radiance vanished. Mournful penitence appeared on every feature. Before a word was spoken, Anne suddenly went down on her knees before the astonished Mrs. Rachel and held out her hands beseechingly. Oh, Mrs. Lynde! 
"'I am so extremely sorry,' she said, with a quiver in her voice. "'I could never express all my sorrow, no, not if I used up a whole dictionary. "'You must just imagine it. "'I behaved terribly to you, and I've disgraced the dear friends Matthew and Marilla, "'who've let me stay at Green Gables, although I'm not a boy. "'I'm a dreadfully wicked and ungrateful girl, and I deserve to be punished "'and cast out by respectful people forever.' It was very wicked of me to fly into a temper because you told me the truth. It was the truth. Every word you said was true. My hair is red, and I'm freckled, and skinny, and ugly. What I said to you was true, too, but I shouldn't have said it. Oh, Mrs. Lynn, please, please forgive me. If you refuse it, it will be a lifelong sorrow on a poor little orphan girl. Would you, even if she had a dreadful temper? Oh, I'm sure you wouldn't. Please say you forgive me, Mrs. Lynde. Anne clasped her hands together, bowed her head, and waited for the word of judgment. There was no mistaking her sincerity. It breathed in every tone of her voice. Both Marilla and Mrs. Lynde recognized its unmistakable ring. But the former understood in dismay that Anne was actually enjoying her valley of humiliation, was reveling in the thoroughness of her abasement. Where was the wholesome punishment upon which she, Marilla, had plumed herself? Anne had turned it into a positive pleasure. Good Mrs. Lynde, not being overburdened with perception, did not see this. She only perceived that Anne had made a very thorough apology, and all resentment vanished from her kindly, if somewhat officious, heart. "'There, there, get up, child,' she said heartily. "'Of course I forgive you. I guess I was a little too hard on you anyway, but I'm such an outspoken person. You just mustn't mind me, that's what.' It can't be denied your hair is terrible red, but I knew a girl once, went to school with her, in fact, whose hair was every mite as red as yours when she was young, but when she grew up it darkened to a real handsome auburn. I wouldn't be a mite surprised if yours did, too. Not a mite. Oh, Mrs. Lynde! Anne drew a long breath as she rose to her feet. You have given me hope! I shall always feel that you are a benefactor. Oh, I could endure anything if I only thought my hair would be a handsome auburn when I grew up. It would be so much easier to be good if one's hair was a handsome auburn, don't you think? And now, may I go out into your garden and sit on that bench under the apple trees while you and Marilla are talking? There is so much scope for imagination out there. "'Laws, yes, run along, child, and you can pick a bouquet of them white June lilies over in the corner if you like.' As the door closed behind Anne, Mrs. Lynde got briskly up to light a lamp. "'She's a real odd little thing. Take this chair, Marilla. It's easier than the one you've got. I just keep that for the hired boy to sit on. Yes, she certainly is an odd child, but there's something kind of taking about her after all. I don't feel so surprised at you and Matthew keeping her as I did. Nor so sorry for you either. She may turn out all right.' Of course, she has a queer way of expressing herself, a little too, well, too kind of forcible, you know, but she'll likely get over that now that she's come to live among civilized folks. And then her temper's pretty quick, I guess, but there's one comfort. A child that has a quick temper, just blaze up and cool down, ain't never likely to be sly or deceitful. Preserve me from a sly child, that's what. On the whole, Marilla, I kind of like her. When Marilla went home, Anne came out of the fragrant twilight of the orchard with a sheaf of white narcissi in her hands. "'I apologized pretty well, didn't I?' she said proudly as they went down the lane. "'I thought since I had to do it, I might as well do it thoroughly.' "'You did it thoroughly all right enough,' was Marilla's comment. Marilla was dismayed at finding herself inclined to laugh over the recollection. 
She had also an uneasy feeling that she ought to scold Anne for apologizing so well, but then that was ridiculous. She compromised with her conscience by saying severely, I hope you won't have occasion to make many more such apologies. I hope you'll try to control your temper now, Anne. Oh, that wouldn't be so hard if people wouldn't twit me about my looks, said Anne with a sigh. I don't get cross about other things, but I'm so tired of being twitted about my hair and it just makes me boil right over. Do you suppose my hair will really be a handsome auburn when I grow up? You shouldn't think so much about your looks, Anne. I'm afraid you're a very vain little girl. How can I be vain when I know I'm homely? protested Anne. I love pretty things, and I hate to look at a glass and see something that isn't pretty. It makes me feel so sorrowful, just as I feel when I look at any ugly thing. I pity it because it isn't beautiful. Handsome is as handsome does, quoted Marilla. I've had that said to me before, but I have my doubts about it, remarked skeptical Anne, sniffing at her narcissi. Oh, aren't these flowers sweet? It was lovely of Mrs. Lynde to give them to me. I have no hard feelings against Mrs. Lynde now. It gives you a lovely, comfortable feeling to apologize and be forgiven, doesn't it? Aren't the stars bright tonight? If you could live in a star, which one would you pick? I'd like that lovely, clear, big one away over there above that dark hill. And do hold your tongue said Marilla, thoroughly worn out trying to follow the gyrations of Anne's thoughts. Anne said no more until they turned into their own lane. A little gypsy wind came down it to meet them, laden with the spicy perfume of young dew-wet ferns. Far up in the shadows, a cheerful light gleamed out through the trees from the kitchen at Green Gables. Anne suddenly came close to Marilla and slipped her hand into the older woman's hard palm. It's lovely to be going home and know it's home, she said. I love Green Gables already, and I've never loved any place before. No place ever seemed like home. Oh, Marilla, I'm so happy. I could pray right now and not find it a bit hard. Something warm and pleasant welled up in Marilla's heart at the touch of that thin little hand in her own, a throb of the maternity she had missed, perhaps. Its very unaccustomedness and sweetness disturbed her. She hastened to restore her sensations to their normal calm by inculcating a moral. If you'll be a good girl, you'll always be happy, Anne, and you should never find it hard to say your prayers. Saying one's prayers isn't exactly the same thing as praying, said Anne meditatively, but I'm going to imagine that I'm the wind that is blowing up there in those treetops. When I get tired of the trees, I'll imagine I'm gently waving down here in the ferns, and then I'll fly over to Mrs. Lynde's garden and set the flowers dancing. Then I'll go with one great swoop over the clover field. Then I'll blow over the lake of shining waters and ripple it all up into little sparkling waves. Oh, there's so much scope for imagination in a wind. So I'll not talk any more just now, Marilla. Thanks be to goodness for that, breathed Marilla in devout relief. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 Anne's Impressions of Sunday School Well, how do you like them? said Marilla. Anne was standing in the gable room, looking solemnly at three new dresses spread out on the bed. One was of a snuffy-colored gingham, which Marilla had been tempted to buy from a peddler the preceding summer because it looked so serviceable. One was of black-and-white checkered sateen, which she had picked up at a bargain counter in the winter, and one was a stiff print of an ugly blue shade which she had purchased that week at a Carmody store. 
She had made them up herself, and they were all made alike. Plain skirts, pulled tightly to plain waists, with sleeves as plain as waist and skirt and tight as sleeves could be. "'I'll imagine that I like them,' said Anne soberly. "'I don't want you to imagine it,' said Marilla, offended. "'Oh, I can see you don't like the dresses. What is the matter with them? Aren't they clean and neat and new?' "'Yes.' "'Then why don't you like them?' "'They're... they're not pretty,' said Anne reluctantly. "'Pretty?' Marilla sniffed. "'I didn't trouble my head about getting pretty dresses for you. "'I don't believe in pampering vanity, Anne. "'I'll tell you that right off. "'Those dresses are good, sensible, serviceable dresses "'without any frills or furbelows about them, "'and they're all you'll get this summer. "'The brown kingdom and the blue print will do you for school when you begin to go. "'The sateen is for church and Sunday school. "'I'll expect you to keep them neat and clean and not tear them. "'I should think you'd be grateful to get most anything "'after those skimpy, wincy things you've been wearing.' "'Oh, I am grateful,' protested Anne. "'But I'd be ever so much gratefuler if... "'if you'd made just one of them with puff sleeves. "'Puff sleeves are so fashionable now. "'It would give me such a thrill, Marilla, "'just to wear a dress with puffed sleeves.' "'Well, you'll have to do without your thrill. "'I hadn't any material to waste on puffed sleeves. "'I think they are ridiculous-looking things anyhow. "'I prefer the plain, sensible ones.' "'But I'd rather look ridiculous when everybody else does.' "'Then plain and sensible all by myself,' persisted Anne mournfully. "'Trust you for that. "'Well, hang those dresses carefully up in your closet, "'and then sit down and learn the Sunday school lesson. "'I got a quarterly from Mr. Bell for you, "'and you'll go to Sunday school tomorrow,' said Marilla, "'disappearing downstairs in high dudgeon.' "'Anne clasped her hands and looked at the dresses. "'I did hope there would be a white one with puffed sleeves,' "'she whispered disconsolately. "'I prayed for one.' "'but I didn't much expect it on that account. "'I didn't suppose God would have time to bother "'about a little orphan girl's dress. "'I knew I'd just have to depend on Marilla for it. "'Well, fortunately, I can imagine "'that one of them is of snow-white muslin "'with lovely lace frills and three puffed sleeves.' "'The next morning, warnings of a sick headache "'prevented Marilla from going to Sunday school with Anne. "'You'll have to go down and call for Mrs. Landan,' she said. "'She'll see that you get into the right class. "'Now, mind you behave yourself properly. "'Stay to preaching afterwards and ask Mrs. Lynde to show you our pew. "'Here's a cent for collection. "'Don't stare at people and don't fidget. "'I shall expect you to tell me the text when you come home.' "'Anne started off irreproachable, arrayed in the stiff black-and-white sateen, "'which, while decent as regards length and certainly not open to the charge of skimpiness, contrived to emphasize every corner and angle of her thin figure. Her hat was a little, flat, glossy new sailor, the extreme plainness of which had likewise much disappointed Anne, who had permitted herself secret visions of ribbon and flowers. The latter, however, were supplied before Anne reached the main road, for being confronted halfway down the lane with a golden frenzy of wind-stirred buttercups and a glory of wild roses, Anne promptly and liberally garlanded her hat with a heavy wreath of them. Whatever other people might have thought of the result, it satisfied Anne, and she tripped gaily down the road, holding her ruddy head with its decoration of pink and yellow very proudly. When she reached Mrs. Lynde's house, she found that lady gone. Nothing daunted, Anne proceeded onward to the church alone. In the porch, she found a crowd of little girls, all more or less gaily attired in whites and blues and pinks, and all staring with curious eyes at this stranger in their midst, with her extraordinary head adornment. 
Avonlea little girls had already heard queer stories about Anne. Mrs. Lynde said she had an awful temper. Jerry Beatt, the hired boy at Green Gables, said she talked all the time to herself, or to the trees and flowers, like a crazy girl. They looked at her and whispered to each other behind their quarterlies. Nobody made any friendly advances, then or later on when the opening exercises were over, and Anne found herself in Miss Rogerson's class. Miss Rogerson was a middle-aged lady who had taught a Sunday school class for twenty years. Her method of teaching was to ask the printed questions from the quarterly, and look sternly over its edge at the particular little girl she thought ought to answer the question. She looked very often at Anne, and Anne, thanks to Marilla's drilling, answered promptly, but it may be questioned if she understood very much about either question or answer. She did not think she liked Miss Rogerson, and she felt very miserable. Every other little girl in the class had puffed sleeves. Anne felt that life was really not worth living without puffed sleeves. "'Well, how did you like Sunday school?' Marilla wanted to know when Anne came home. Her wreath having faded, Anne had discarded it in the lane, so Marilla was spared the knowledge of that for a time. "'I didn't like it a bit. It was horrid.' "'Anne Shirley,' said Marilla rebukingly. Anne sat down on the rocker with a long sigh, kissed one of Bonnie's leaves, and waved her hand to a blossoming fuchsia. "'They might have been lonesome while I was away,' she explained. "'And now about the Sunday school. I behaved well, just as you told me. Mrs. Lynde was gone, but I went right on myself. I went into the church with a lot of other little girls, and I sat in the corner of a pew by the window while the opening exercises went on. Mr. Bell made an awfully long prayer.' I would have been dreadfully tired before he got through it if I hadn't been sitting by the window. But it looked right out on the Lake of Shining Water, so I just gazed at that and imagined all sorts of splendid things. You shouldn't have done anything of the sort. You should have listened to Mr. Bell. But he wasn't talking to me, protested Anne. He was talking to God, and he didn't seem to be very much interested in it either. I think he thought God was too far off, though. There was a long row of white birches hanging over the lake, and the sunshine fell down through them, way, way down deep into the water. Oh, Marilla, it was like a beautiful dream. It gave me a thrill, and I just said, Thank you for it, God, two or three times. Not out loud, I hope, said Marilla anxiously. Oh, no, just under my breath. Well, Mr. Bell did get through it at last, and they told me to go into the classroom with Miss Rogerson's class. There were nine other girls in it. They all had puffed sleeves. I tried to imagine mine were puffed, too, but I couldn't. Why couldn't I? It was as easy as could be to imagine they were puffed when I was alone in the East Gable, but it was awfully hard there among the others who had really, truly puffs. You shouldn't have been thinking about your sleeves in Sunday school. You should have been attending to the lesson. I hope you knew it. Oh, yes, and I answered a lot of questions. Miss Rogerson asked ever so many. I don't think it was fair for her to do all the asking. There were lots I wanted to ask her, but I didn't like to because I didn't think she was a kindred spirit. Then all the other little girls recited a paraphrase. She asked me if I knew any. I told her I didn't, but I could recite the dog at his master's grave if she liked. That's in the third royal reader. It isn't a really, truly religious piece of poetry, but it's so sad and melancholy that it might as well be. She said it wouldn't do, and she told me to learn the 19th paraphrase for next Sunday. I read it over in church afterwards, and it's splendid. There are two lines in particular that just thrill me. Quick as the slaughtered squadrons fell in Midian's evil day. I don't know what squadrons means, nor Midian either, but it sounds so tragical. I can hardly wait until next Sunday to recite it. I'll practice it all the week. 
After Sunday school, I asked Miss Rogerson, because Mrs. Lynde was too far away, to show me your pew. I sat just as still as I could, and the text was Revelations 3rd chapter, 2nd and 3rd verses. It was a very long text. If I was a minister, I'd pick the short, snappy ones. The sermon was awfully long, too. I suppose the minister had to match it to the text. I didn't think it was a bit interesting. The trouble with him seems to be he has enough imagination. I didn't listen to him very much. I just let my thoughts run, and I thought of the most surprising things. Marilla felt helplessly that all this should be sternly reproved, but she was hampered by the undeniable fact that some of the things Anne had said, especially about the minister's sermons and Mr. Bell's prayers, were what she herself had really thought deep down in her heart for years, but had never given expression to. It almost seemed to her that those secret, unuttered, critical thoughts had suddenly taken visible and accusing shape and form in the person of this outspoken morsel of neglected humanity. End of chapter 11 Short and Snappy Verses <laughs> Anne gives great advice in all things in these chapters. But taking it back to the beginning with her apology, her non-apology apology to Miss Rachel Lynde, there are so many things to love about what she does there, but also so many things to love about Marilla there for catching on to the fact that Anne was reveling in this dramatic moment. She couldn't abase herself enough to Miss Lynde. And of course, Rachel Lynde is just eating it with a spoon, loving it. But I also love that Anne was able to sneak in the, well, what I said to you was true too, but I shouldn't have said it. And because she ended so nicely, that little dig was missed. So awesome. And also, Lucy Maud Montgomery's, that Miss Rachel Lynde was not overburdened with perception. I love that. But to give credit to Rachel Lynde, where it is due, coming back with a potential future compliment for Anne's potential future auburn hair was just about the smartest thing she could have done. And I thought that was that was kind of nice and nicely done on her part to figure out that that was probably the point of the most epic soreness in Anne's young little heart. So good on Rachel. And then again, on our, our way out of that chapter and into chapter 11, where Anne actually goes to church, you have that lovely moment on the road where Anne is just so overwhelmed by beauty, again, and loving where she is. And, and that she's with Marilla. I mean, she's, she has such a great heart and a great spirit that she really gives Lucy Maud Montgomery a wonderful vehicle for putting forth what, what is clearly kind of her viewpoint on some aspects of religion. And one of those is prayer. And what a huge difference she is pointing out between saying your prayers you know, doing what you're told to, be a good girl, repeat it without paying any attention, really, probably, versus praying where you are just moved to say thank you or I'm sorry or how beautiful. It's an important distinction, I think, that we're, we're being shown. And then chapter 11 just shows it that much more. And of course, Lucy Maud Montgomery is married to a clergyman, and I can't help wondering hmm, if some of her digs at the minister in chapter 11 were also digs at her husband. 
But you also have to love the digs at the clothes that Marilla made for Anne. First off, she made three dresses in a week, so yay, Marilla. But, but wow, really? You couldn't give him even a full skirt? Oh, man, poor thing. And I love, I love Anne's. I don't care if I look ridiculous. It's better to look ridiculous than to be plain and sensible by myself. Boy, if that doesn't sum up what it feels like to be in middle school and high school, I don't know what does. That's just, that nails it. It's beautiful. I also wonder if you noticed the reference to Marilla getting a sick headache. This is going to come up more and more, and we'll talk about it more later, but this is the first time it's been mentioned, and so I wanted to make sure to point it out so we can kind of track back to this later on. And were you as shocked as I was that at Sunday school, none of the girls came up and said, hello, or nice to have you here, or anything? It was interesting that we wound up doing this chapter this week because I know there were several communities across the nation who this week, instead of having the kids do a walk out necessarily, this was all concerning the horrible shooting in Florida uh, last month, the schools, ours included, did something called a walk up. And the idea was, so often with these school shootings, after the fact, we find out that the child who was responsible, if it was in fact a minor who was responsible, they are often alienated or disconnected and that some of that could perhaps be mitigated by making sure there isn't anyone in your midst who is being ignored. And if there's somebody new at school, if there's somebody who you know you should have said hello to, but now it's so awkward because you didn't at the beginning and now you don't know what to say, this day was that opportunity. And I thought, what a, what a marvelous thing. It's easy for people to criticize students for going and walking out of class because it's reinforcing negative stereotypes about students to begin with. No, you don't want to be there. You'd rather be doing anything else. You're lazy. You're unproductive. You're not learning anything. That kind of stuff. It's a little more difficult to get on kids for walking out of class in order to congregate in an area where they can make sure everyone has someone to talk to. I thought that was kind of cool. And very much reflected in how that didn't happen to Anne here in a book from 100 years ago. <laughs> I also loved Anne's statement about the minister when he was preaching his sermon. And Marilla said, did you listen? Well, no, because he wasn't talking to me. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was talking to God. I think that was generous of her. I would perhaps think that he was talking to himself, <laughs> especially since Marilla, to her chagrin, agreed with everything that Anne said that was critical of the minister. And that is one of those Marilla moments that I just love. She's flustered and she's discombobulated and she doesn't really know how to respond because you know that you're supposed to be, you know, training the child to be good and respectful and all this stuff. But gosh darn it, if she isn't right. <laughs> I love that. And then, of course, short and snappy. In a later era, I wonder if Anne would have gone into marketing. It's hard to know. All right, we have one last comment from listener Joy, and we're going to end with her voicemail. She does mention books, things that you can read up on to follow up on what she has to comment on. And I'm going to throw a couple of links into the show notes as well at, again, craftlit.com 482, because 
I think some of what she says at the very, very end starts to touch on confirmation bias. And my kids have been doing a lot of research about confirmation bias lately, and they've gotten some pretty interesting links for y'all. So I'm going to let Joy take us out. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, Heather and Craftlet listeners. I wanted to talk about something today that is a little bit off topic. Heather mentioned in passing about the jokes uh, about the Irish and the difference between the Canadian and American situation with immigrants. And it brought up a lot of feelings for me because there are certain things that I hear over and over that I feel we accept too readily. We accept things as truisms and we don't question. And I always think if someone makes a statement, when we hear a statement over and over again, that's accepted as true and no one disputes it, there's something else going on there. I can remember sitting in a graduate class and hearing the statement from the professor that people say the immigrants are taking the jobs from them, but really they're taking the jobs that the white people won't do anymore or the citizens won't do anymore. And that's not really true. The situation usually is that the employer is no longer paying wages that are enough so that the workers can feed their children or pay their rent. And there may be union organizing going on or a strike or people just quitting and going somewhere else because they have to do something. So my, as Ellen DeGeneres used to say, my point is, and I do have one, I hope that our social situation changes so that we can actually talk about these things because we're too, too divided. And this is a situation where clearly the division is something that was and still is to the advantage of the employer if they can get people pitted against each other saying, oh, they're taking our jobs, when really the situation is much, much different. So thanks for listening. If you were interested in this topic and please comment and I'll put a note on the website about some books you can read about this. Thanks a lot. And I'm looking forward to Anne of Green Gables. Bye-bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.